Welcome to Misinformation, hosted by Rebecca Jones and produced by Big Mouth Media. This weekly podcast with Florida COVID whistleblower Rebecca Jones dives into the world of disinformation and how it's hurting America and democracy. Now, here she is, Misinformational. back again for this week's episode of Misinformational. I am Rebecca Jones, your host, and joined by my co-host, Dr. Cindy Banyai, who is here with us today. Hello. Hi, live from the dumpster fire that is Southwest Florida. All of Florida is a dumpster fire right now on misinformational.com. The DeSantis for President FEC filing. So, Cindy and I had a bit of fun with this <laughs> a few days ago. We were filing our campaign finance report for the quarter, which is due every 15 days after the end of the quarter. And I went to go fact check Trump's claim about how he raised all that money during his premature arrestulation back in mid-March. Now, update on that, the itemized receipts are not available yet, so I can't filter by that specific time period. But I moseyed on over to all of the presidential candidates and found two kind of weird things. First, I've never heard of John Castro. I don't know who he is, but he's got $40 million in his bank account for this year. And I was about to go look up who the heck this guy is, which I still have not done because I saw another candidate pop up on the radar, Ron DeSantis. So apparently FEC paperwork was filed on behalf of and is allegedly signed by Ron DeSantis for president 2024 on April 8th. Now, this was the 15th, I believe it was when our paperwork was due. So this is a whole week later. And I find this and I immediately go and share it that he quietly filed this paperwork. It was about 30 minutes later by my frenemy, Laura Loomer let me know that the filing was fake, or at least the DeSantis propaganda websites were claiming that it was fake. It's been a week since they were apparently tipped off about this, and it's still up on the FEC website. The form itself says that it was signed by Ronald Dion DeSantis, and to this day, it is still up. So it's interesting that it's still up, because this does two things. It makes it so that DeSantis can technically campaign for president because someone did file paperwork on his behalf. Whether or not it's legitimate, he is a filed candidate. At the same time, the moment that you file your candidacy for president, you have to resign your position as governor of Florida, which obviously he's not done. There is a hearing Thursday at 9.30 a.m. in the state legislature to, I guess, vote on or maybe debate the rule change to remove the resign to run law, but it has not been enacted yet. I would think if you're DeSantis and you aren't ready to file or that it was unauthorized, the first thing you would do was call somebody at the FEC and say, we did not authorize this, please remove it immediately. And they would do that. They're not hard to get a hold of. But here we are 10 days later and it's still up. Yeah. I, I think what's interesting is, yeah, you and I were talking about this. I looked it up. I found it too. 
it has a couple of peculiarities on it. Of course, has the governor's mansion as one address, and then the governor's office as, as another address. And then yeah. it actually lists Christy Noem, the was it the South Dakota governor? Yes. One of the Dakotas. Um, yeah, as the as the running mate, which is like not a thing in the primary anyway. So that was interesting. But the thing that I keep thinking about is that if it was forged, right, like somebody else filled it out, that would be a crime, wouldn't it? A serious crime. So in 2016, the FEC actually enacted measures to prevent things like this happening because people were falsely submitting campaign documents for all kinds of people, which can get that candidate in trouble, like a lot of trouble if it's fake because they're expected right. to submit reporting and things like that. And but if they, they don't do like that. Special number. Yes. And... But if they it's a new all these thing, I don't know, but he would already have that number actually because he would already have a, he would have a federal filing number because he was a congressman. Yes, he would. I don't know if it would be different as a candidate for president or not, but yeah, the whole thing was bizarre. The Christy Nome thing was weird because, of course, she and, and Carrie Lake are two of the most likely people that Donald Trump is going to tap to be vice president. Mm. Although I don't think it's that weird that someone would announce their vice president person now because Donald Trump's about to do that. He actually announced, I think it was today, that he is going to pick a woman as his running mate and may go ahead and announce that it's probably going to be Carrie Lake way ahead of the primary. Like we're talking, it's a year from now. Nothing about this election is going to be done normal. Neither of these people, DeSantis or Trump, are your typical candidates. No. So. I wouldn't actually be surprised if he did that. However, the rest of it is bizarre. There's, yeah, and there's not been a lot of coverage. If I don't think I've seen anything on it except for yeah, a handful of tweets story, on it. and then that fake Florida Voice or something like that website that is pretty much just a fake website to push DeSantis propaganda. Oh, I forget what it's called though. But yeah, that's the Brendan Leslie Facebook extraordinaire, I believe. The guy who I always see tweeting about is Chris something, I think. But he actually Florida, messaged Florida Voice is definitely a show for, yes. for Rod DeSantis. And it's definitely run by fired reporter from Wink News here in Southwest Florida, Brendan Leslie, who also used that platform to film himself invading the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. So great stuff. Yeah, so Florida, I think, still to this day has the most or the highest number of arrestees and associated with January 6th. So that's always fun, too. Actually, the Northwest Florida Panhandle has more than anybody, any other region oh. of the country. And we're well, the January 6th capital. Listen, not to brag, but Southwest <laughs> Florida has the first guy who crossed the line. That was Daniel Scott, a.k.a. Milkshake of the Hurricane Coast Proud Boys, who just pled guilty he was the first guy to beat up the cops and cross the line so that's from here and also let's not forget that roger stone met with the hurricane proud coast proud boys on january 4th in naples and all right he did daniel scott and christopher quote-unquote bear spray world our crazies are anyway, florida's like the hotbed of this insane traitorous bullshit so let's just yes they are so I fell for it. Obviously, I shared it. After talking to Laura, I removed it and issued a correction. But then that's where we come to part two of our number five on our list, which is the fake Trump post. 
Hmm. Most of us don't have true social. I mean, rarely anybody does. And Trump doesn't really use Twitter because he's contractually obligated to continue using true social as hmm. his main outlet because he took a lot of money from people who invested in it. So he has to do that. So when you see something posted supposedly from Trump from True Social and you don't have an account there, most of us don't go over there to check to see if it's real. And because we're in the upside down in which the things that people say seem like they should be satire, but oftentimes are indeed quite serious, we come expecting Trump to say any ridiculous thing. Yeah. So right after about a half an hour after i tweeted out that desantis paperwork had been filed a, a true social post from trump began circulating about the desantis filing turns out that was fake too so i actually made a comment about people you need to start labeling your satire because in today's society we cannot tell the difference it seemed legitimate we'll show it here on the screen but he basically calls ron desantis a loser. He says his wife is average, and I guess meaning average, and uh, it's not yeah. a viral Trump post without a spelling error. Yeah, I know exactly. They, this, they got the psychology of it down, but uh, yeah, apparently that was fake too. So I participated in two fake stories and sharing them. Oh God, it's a headache. Okay, listen, I'm going to let you off though. the hook. I'm going to let you off the hook with the FEC filing because. You went to the FEC website, like I went to the FEC website, and there that information's there. This was the official government documents published on the FEC. Whether or not it was forged is the right. question. So, like, it's not like we just read an article that said that. Yes. We found the actual documents. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so, and the second one, I'm honest, I've never fact-checked anything that I've heard that Trump said on Truth Social because I'm not creating accounts. On true social. I also honestly just try not to give as much bandwidth to what Trump says, period. Like, I just. I was at a very low tolerance for men attacking women on that day. And that's why I responded to it and shared it. But normally I don't either. Yep, that was twice. I participated in the first time. It's a little more complicated. But the second time that was fake. That was misinformation. I took it down and I said, please stop doing this because I can't tell the difference at this point. Half the stuff that Trump posted about Alvin Bragg, you would think would be fake. It was very much real. So it's hard to tell. But that was number five. So the Santa slash Trump and the filing fiasco. I've had too much caffeine today, as you can tell, because I'm jittery. Ooh. Number four is the TYT turf goes berserk. Well, here we go. Let's get into this. We posted a special response to an article, or I guess a YouTube video, by Anna Kasparian of the Young Turks, TYT. Now, I had been a part of a regular series on TYT in 2020 and 2021 that was produced, hosted, managed by my very good friend, Josh Fox, who is also the Academy Award nominated director who's making the documentary about me that should be out in the next few months. So I had a good relationship with TYT, at least from its special shows perspective not really i think i've done i've talked to anna on air once maybe at, yeah not really that memorable i was gonna say but, i actually don't have a strong relationship with them but i did a special event through the coalition no dems left behind with chinkunger so yeah so i great relationship from the production side for me but not much with their news side 
And then I got some people forwarded me a link to this YouTube video that Anna Kasparian, who was recently being dragged in liberal circles for some very anti-trans turf statements that she made that she dug into horrendously going once she got called out for it, you'd think she'd apologize, but no, she dug in and was laughing at people that were offended, which is great. So maybe to distract from the shit posting people were doing on her, she went after me and posted this, I think it was 18 minute, basically regurgitation of everything from the daily mail and the nationalist review. Now, of course, the Miami Herald, Tampa Bay Times, CNN, Yahoo, Florida Today, USA Today have all just torn apart these two things years ago. But she actually presents it as if she's breaking some investigative story by repeating a Daily Mail article from 2020. So we did a big takedown of that. And uh, it's not as engaging, but I was like, I'm just going to go point by point and talk about why this is bullshit. And then send that out there. Her attempt to distract from the turf comments didn't really work because based on the views and everything else, not that many people saw it or paid attention to it. Yeah. More people watched my video response than did hers, which is fine. And then on the Big Mouth Media page, we posted, shared that, and then tagged them. So I didn't hear anything. Did you? Nope. I just sent it to TYT with some references this morning. And so we'll see if they respond at all because I don't have her direct production contact information. I only have it from Sank's show. So I'm not even sure if I'm getting to the right people, but I have friends who are planning on reaching out to her this week to make her issue an apology. So that was the- I look forward to that. Yeah, I know. So number three, number two are going to be depressing, heavy, very politically charged things. And on this show, we don't just talk about misinformation, disinformation. We also discuss how the media frames stories, media bias, and talking about breaking news and the importance of using caution when invoking certain emotions or aspects of a story before we have the whole picture. So our number three story for the week, maybe we need a flyby graphic or something <laughs> to make us look fancy like the Young Turks, is about Ralph Yarl. And mm. he was the teenager, 16 years old, who was shot in the head and the arm by an 84 or 85-year-old white man has referred to him as both 84 and 85. So I'm not sure which one it is. I'm not going to go request the guy's birth certificate, but he's old. He was born and grew up in schools that were segregated. So the facts as they're known right now are that Ralph, this kid, was supposed to pick up his younger brothers from a friend's house and mixed up street with terrace. So he was supposed to go to 115th Northeast street and went to terrace instead or or vice versa and uh, rang the doorbell it was the wrong address in which case he unfortunately did not know what was going to happen andrew lester who's the old man woke up says the first thing he did when he heard the doorbell ring was grab his gun which we could talk a whole lot about how the way that politics are being framed today has made yep. people fearful of everything and everyone. Yep. That um, was my yeah. angle on it too. Yeah. Because there was another young woman who was right. murdered because she turned down the wrong driveway. Yep. I, think, I believe she tried to turn around and pulled into somebody's driveway and they killed her. So we already have a lot of armed 
afraid yep. people who are suspect of everyone. Yep. But this goes even a bit beyond that. So he grabbed his gun, went to the door, looked at the kid. So he made this decision based on how the kid looked. He This is, again, from his statement, according to the prosecutors, and then shot him in the head. Through the glass, I believe. Yes, he did. And then when he was on the ground, shot him again in the arm. Police initially lied and said that they were unable to get Ralph, the child's statement in the hospital, even though by some miracle, this kid was coherent the whole time and did actually speak to police. Some of wow. his the attorneys representing his family said, no, he did speak to police and he told them exactly what happened. So the police take in this guy, they questioned him for about two hours and they sent him home. No charges, nothing. And one of the most tragic parts of this, and this goes back to that fear and suspicion that Americans now have of everyone and everything, was that even after being shot in the head, this kid managed to stumble away and went to three different houses for help, every single one of which refused to help him. Hmm. We're talking about a kid with a bullet wound in his skull, begging for help. Three different houses refused to help him. He finally gets to one and the person tells him to lay on the ground with his hands up while he calls the police. This is how this kid was rescued. Wow. 16 year old nerdy band kid who wanted to be a chemical, I'm sorry, wants to be a chemical engineer at Texas A&M was part of the Missouri Youth Scholar Program. Apparently a very talented musician stumbling around shot in the head asking for help in three different homes. It's not that they weren't home. They refused to help. Yeah. I don't know how, maybe it's luck or maybe it's a miracle, but this kid is now home and is expected to make a full recovery. Although it obviously will take time, which is absolutely incredible. Thank God. And so as the story started to unfold and we found out that, this was clearly a racially motivated thing mm -hmm. that this kid did literally nothing other than ring the doorbell and was shot in the head for it. And that they had interviewed the man who shot him and let him go without charges and apparently had no intention on filing charges. You started to see protests pop up right. in Kansas City. There was a lot of public pressure to do something. I was part of urging that as well. I think most people were sharing this as being outraged that this poor child was because he mixed up Terrace and Street, shot in the head. It's, I mean, he was a block away. And the police handling of this has been absolutely disgusting. Mm -hmm. Lying about not being able to interview him, to lying about there being no racial component, to declining to hold him for 24 hours, which they could have done while they investigated. Mm -hmm. They just went to home. Uh, was one big screw up after the next. After all this pressure, the protests, the outrage, the prosecutors step in over the police and say, we're charging him with class A, what was it? Assault. Assault. First degree and armed criminal action. I was, I deleted another tweet about this because I was like, why in the hell didn't you charge this person with attempted murder? Missouri does not have an attempted murder charge. So this charge that he's charged with is the most severe charge that he can be charged with. And of course, the prosecutors came out afterwards and said there was absolutely a racial component to it. Only after 
outrage and the course, the inevitability of that being found out. <sighs> yeah, this is a pretty disgusting case, honestly. And I think it's a really great opportunity for us to point out that police lie and they actually do not have any thing that compels them to tell the truth. And that I think goes against what a lot of people believe. Like we oftentimes grow up with the movie and television dramatization of police officers that they're always just and they're doing the right thing, but they can lie to you and they do lie to you and they lie to you for purposes of tricking you. And they'll lie to you for purposes of making things look better for themselves. And they will lie to you to get you to do different things, to confess. And there is no legal component that makes it so that they don't can't do that. And yes. I think that's really important for every single American citizen to understand that this is part of the tactics that are used and we have to protect ourselves. But I think that we also need to realize that when they are telling statements out into the public that they don't actually have any sort of legal responsibility to tell the truth, even exactly. in those circumstances. And there's no recourse for the people who are victimized by this. Right. Now, this was a lesson that a lot of news stations have done better with since George Floyd. So it used to normally be that whatever the police report said, that was the whole story, period. As if it was, these are always preliminary investigations and they took the word of the police to be it statements of fact. And after George Floyd's, which had probably the most perverted version of events, a police report that I've ever seen in my life, people realize that you can't just report what the police are saying. This is going to be another big issue on our next item, but we'll get to that in a minute. And I think it's also really important to note that this happened either a day or two days after Greg Abbott announced that he would be pardoning the guy who killed that 28-year-old veteran Garrett Foster as part of the Black Lives Matter protest, said that he was, the day after he was convicted, that he was going to expedite his pardon for murder. And of course, then after that, all of the text messages leaked in which this was completely a racially motivated thing. He talked about how he was going to go out and kill Black people and Muslims. That's what he said. He said, I'm going to kill some Black people and Muslims. And then he killed a Black person, was convicted of it by a jury. And Greg Abbott steps in and says... I'm going to pardon this guy. So when you've got white people who are able to kill black people in cold blood and the governor steps in to issue pardons, white men do feel empowered. There's a sense of impunity there that they can act without recourse. And if there had not been public outrage over this incident, that old man would have gone home and lived the rest of his days in peace. Yeah, totally fine. But I do want to loop back just to the emphasis on, yes, this is a culture of fear that's being stoked by the right that you can see this happening when you see survey data coming out of Chicago that people living in Chicago have a less fearful perception of their city than the people living outside of Chicago. Yep. And that has everything to do with this right-wing narrative that the crime is up going higher and it's so dangerous and oh that's of course why we need guns never mind the fact that actually we've been decreasing crime rates since the 90s we had a especially in up urban up areas in the yeah during the pandemic but that was 
stress related, et cetera, but it's still at historic lows. So the, this is a perception issue and people are being manipulated into yeah. this fearful sense and they're being fueled with guns and we're seeing the consequences with incidents like the shooting of Ralph Yarrow. So this is a problem that has plagued the media that we discuss in journalism school all the time. There have been multiple studies that show that even local news affiliates cover certain types of crime to a disproportionate amount. So especially urban black crime, they will cover that far more than they do proportionally for the share of crime that it is than they do, let's say, white collar crime. And it also brings up this other question, which is our media question of the week or ethics question of the week, is when do we report on race at stories like the Ralph Yarl case? And when does race become the focal point of the story? In case you weren't aware, in addition to being an earth scientist, I also majored in journalism at Syracuse and mass communications at LSU. And so ethics was, I was the like most timid person in our ethics class. We would do these like kind of simulations where we play a video of an incident happening, like the plane crash in DC where it crashed into the ice and the people are like drowning as the news is broadcasting this. And our professor would stop it every time kind of something happened and say, who's out? I'd be the first one out. I'd be like, I'm down. I'm done. You don't know if these people are going to make it. You don't know if their family's watching. You don't know what information. I'm out. Like, I was the most skittish person. And so with that context, there's also the debate at which place we put race or highlight race as an aspect of a story. So we're going to include some of the headline, the different headlines that covered this case. And I'm going to try my best not to include Twitter commentary as much as possible. A, because it's ugly and disgusting, but B, because a lot of it's artificial and fueled right. by foreign actors who want to stoke division. But I thought it was very interesting that the Wall Street Journal bent itself backwards trying to avoid not only the race of the shooter, but the race of the victim. And this wasn't something they just did initially when they didn't have that information. This was a headline from when this man was charged. So it actually said man charged with shooting 16 year old. No mention of race whatsoever, even though the prosecutor has said that race played pretty much the critical role in why this happened. The New York Times included the race of the victim, but not the race of the shooter. Mm -hmm. We kind of phrase as this default syndrome where it's automatically assumed that anyone whose race isn't specified as white, which is wrong. First of all, most of the New York Times writers are white, but also makes people miss the fact that's a racial component. Others, and this is the weirdest thing, and I hate when people do this, awkwardly referred to the shooter by his housing status as homeowner, which has always been a passive means of establishing credibility and diminishing fault in news stories in which crime mm -hmm. is involved. So if you had seen a headline that says, man renting house shoots 16-year-old kid for ringing doorbell, People would be like, why is the fact that he's renting the house relevant to this story? The answer is, it's not. Equally, the fact that he owns the house is not even relevant to the story. Whether or not he owns or rents has nothing to do with this. But now, that can also be used as a proxy for race, too, is the point. Yes. And it establishes that this person passively had some kind of authority to right. shoot this child, which he does not. You'd have the same authority if he rented than if he owned. But there's or, all or you wouldn't of, have the authority. <laughs> yeah, saying under the standard ground laws, it's the same. It's nothing, but it's the same nothing. Oh, God, I have so many feelings about media ethics this week.
week, I swear to God. <laughs> but in the case of the in Texas, the killer targeted his victim because of their race. In this case, the man shot him after seeing him. And this, these were his words because he was scared for his life at the black kid standing on his doorstep. In those cases, when race is the thing that determined whether or not these events happened, it's worth putting it in a headline. Headlines mm. are supposed to be really short. They don't even have to have necessarily proper grammar or punctuation. They're meant to tell you essentially what the story was about. And for this one, homeowner was has nothing to do with it. Now, I use the example in our write-up. If this was a story about how a renter shot a homeowner who tried to evict him, then those statuses matter. But that's pretty much the only context that matters is if that relationship is prudent to the story itself. I am of the position of this, and I said this a lot during the Covenant shooting, that if the race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, nationality, or other protected status did not play a fundamental role in the events, it should not be mentioned in the headline. Maybe somewhere in the story for additional context, but if it didn't drive that, then it should not be part of the headline. The Covenant shooting being one of those things where people wanted to run the headline that this was a trans shooter, which the details of which are still murky. There doesn't seem to be any clear final input from police or otherwise, actually whether or not this person was trans or whether that had anything to do with the shooting. And of course, mm -hmm. even people like Joe Walsh, who I'm somewhat allied with, said that, every headline should include the fact that it was a Christian school. If the school had been targeted specifically because it was a Christian school, yes, it should. There's no evidence to substantiate that whatsoever. The school yeah. was targeted because it was a school that the shooter attended and yeah. knew, not because it was a Christian school. I actually got into a whole debate about the headline with Joe Walsh about this because he said there was something wrong with it. And I thought he meant that by saying it was a former Christian school student, that they were implying that kids who go to Christian school are crazy. He actually meant that it should say that the school was targeted because it was Christian, which again, there has been no evidence whatsoever to suggest that. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I don't think that should have been mentioned at all, either the Christian status of the school or the gender identity of the shooter, because neither one of those were the driving factors of that story. Yeah, I think this stuff is so tough. It really is. And I think the journalists to have a difficult task because not only are they dealing with their own biases, latent biases right? Like how they feel comfortable talking about things, which is I think how you get the things like homeowner versus old white man, like kind of situation and not to excuse it, but I can see how that's a complicating factor. But also, you have the same biases of your editors. And oftentimes, the people who write the story aren't the same people that write the headline. Yes, that is so true. there's also that thing to consider. And but if your like, full job is to write headlines and not even stories, it's not like this stuff is rare. <laughs> You've got plenty of opportunities to get it better. And yeah. there doesn't seem to be much motivation to do that. And I will say that a critique that I have of media and media coverage, especially at this stage of incidents, is that there are assumptions about what 
the intention is. But very rarely through an investigation do you ever actually uncover the intent. And even then, sometimes the intent is not relevant to the story. So recently, we got the investigative report about the deadliest mass shooting in American history, which was the Las Vegas concert. They basically attributed his motivation, which there's a whole thing about schools and mass shooters and motivations, to the fact that he had gambling debt and was angry at casinos. That was it. Everybody has been wondering, why did this person with basically no criminal history, no political ideology, no at least verifiable history of mental illness, amass these weapons and open fire on an outdoor concert of hundreds of people. And he killed, I think, 60... I used to have that. Yeah, it was in the 60s. It was in the 60s and then wounded hundreds. My uncle was in that shooting, by the way. Yeah, it's... That's what the final investigation, and this was many years ago, determined was the motivation. But that in itself is not even motivation. He didn't open fire on a casino. He open fired on a concert outside and from a hotel. And that might be why they think he was angry and resentful at the world. But there, even within that report, was no actual connection between that and why he chose to do it. Unfortunately, sometimes these things don't have a good reason. We right. always want to look for a good reason. We want to understand. Yeah. We what want to understand. Reason. Exactly. And th- But there's not a lot of answers. And I will say that there's also, and I think what becomes difficult with both talking about the racial element and then reporting on it is that sometimes that's like a 30,000 foot view, right? Yeah. You can look at something and say, yes, this person was probably motivated by this fear context and had a hyper vigilant state because he'd been primed to think that young black men are going to cause him physical harm. But is that man even going to recognize that? Is that going to be an element of some of the local discussion on it? It it sometimes is not very clear that's even happening. That's part of the reason why that Zimmerman dude got away with killing Trayvon Martin in cold blood is because one of the jury members actually said that she found it reasonable to be distrusting and fearful of a black kid walking around in the neighborhood. She thought that was a reasonable fear, just walking around. Of course, Zimmerman hunted this kid down. Like he followed him, instigated a fight. The kid tried to flee and then they got it and he got away with it. But yeah, it's, it is hard to break down what would lead a person to have those ideas in the first place? Of course, this guy was born and went, like we said, went to segregated schools for yeah, like a long time. time. But I think but, that um, this is actually part of a broader conversation about the left and right dis- discourse on things sometimes, because I think that there's a tendency in right-wing media and thought to be very, for lack of a better word, black and white about it. But it's, here's the situation This guy shot this guy and that's it. Like they're not necessarily putting this whole pretext into it because the pretext can be quite (laughs) counter narrative for them. And, but then there's this kind of, this school of thought in the left wing analysis and politics where they're saying, hey, look, this is motivated by racism or this is motivated by sexism. Even if it isn't necessarily. And sometimes it's true, but it's also because it's analysis, right? It's not like... It's talking at 30,000 feet when the situation happened here at 
the ground yeah. level. And it, so when you say, hey, this is motivated by racism, what is going to happen? I 100% guarantee this is going to happen coming out of the right wing media is that this guy, they're going to get a quote from the shooter and he's going to say, I'm not racist. And they're going to go see, he says he's not racist without recognizing that there can be these systemic components and cultural components that have fed into his racist behavior without him even necessarily being recognizing within himself that he's a racist. And that's where I think the discourse across party lines gets really difficult because both people are saying, both sides are saying things that ostensibly are true from their vantage point. And that's not typecast just conservative outlets too, because certainly CNN is guilty of its share of this thing. And newspapers and local media outlets across the country have been guilty of this for decades. As you mentioned, you figure by now they would have grappled with how to have a more high level conversation about these things. And maybe it's the nature of the newsroom that people are constantly rotating, cycling in and out. Yeah. Or that a lot of the kind of old style types of journalists are retiring or not even there anymore for whatever Leaving reason. Leaving the field. Yeah. <laughs> it's really um, like once you're in journalism now and they have to pay you above minimum wage, you're out the door. <laughs> like, yeah. And then the other folks are going into different industries. And so you're actually losing a lot of knowledge within the media industry. Unfortunately. Especially knowledge that predates the 24 hour news cycle, which of course we've had since like the eighties. So there's not a lot of that expertise, but yeah, it's problematic. It's certainly problematic, but it's not a new issue. Like I said, I was in journalism school 15 years ago and we had these conversations. So those kids are now, even because journalism is a fickle field, lead producers at a lot of these networks and aren't making those changes. It's like, all right, but we've got to move on from this one and go to the next more depressing and disturbing one, which is number two. So we're recording this on... April 18th, and it will air on April 20th. April 19th is the 30th anniversary of the end of the Siege of Waco and the Oklahoma bombing anniversary and a whole bunch of other anniversaries, unfortunately, because both have inspired acts of domestic terrorism over the years. So I'm only 33. I was four when Waco happened and six when the Oklahoma bombing happened. 9-11 was my coming of age, realized that the world is a dangerous place, exposure to mass death kind of thing. So I didn't know a whole lot about Waco or the Oklahoma City bombing. I especially did not know that the two were connected. I didn't know about, had never heard about Ruby Ridge, which is apparently an alt-right marching point. And I was blissfully unaware of the conspiracy theories around all three of those until very recently. I decided after I heard about Trump holding his first campaign event in Waco, Texas, at the anniversary of the start of the siege, and was like, why would a person do that? All I knew was that there was a religious cult that was in an incident with or standoff with police over a long period of time. So people died. That was it. I, we've talked about like our, how do we know what we know and the assumptions we make about our worldview. This was one of my problematic things. I would say I watched it live because I'm 10 years older than you. So I, I did not. I was, I was I was nobody was going to let me know what was going on with those two things. It's a bit dense for a four-year-old. Then again, my daughter 
experience things that no child her age should ever have to. On this 30th anniversary, you have to, and we are hoping by the time this airs that nothing crazy has happened. But with Trump choosing to have his first campaign event for 2024 there, and the surge of anti-government, anti-federal agencies that we've seen, this end slash white nationalist resurgence that we've seen over the last few years, there have been heightened alerts about potential attacks marking the 30th anniversary. Hopefully none of that will have happened. And if it had, we'll have to catch up with that. But we're hoping that by the time this airs, the anniversary will come and gone without problem. Oh boy. So let me say one thing. Cause I, like I said, I've that, that happened in my early teen years and I have been a nerd my whole life. So I watched all of it on fail, <laughs> like unfurl live. Right. I always use Waco as the fuck around and find out example, because all this stuff, the guy was a creep on top of all sorts of other stuff. Yes. The ATF, the alcohol, it was called alcohol, tobacco and firearms agency, Really, royally really fucked up yeah royally fucked up they <laughs> fucked up a lot of stuff i was gonna say screwed the pooch but but yeah it was a really big mess up it didn't have to happen that way a lot of people got killed at the hands of the atf so there's a lot of criticism uh, to go around that's the a lot point of, of contention exactly yeah. but so, there, there's a lot of things that could happen but what i always say about this is that this is actually the anti to a argument right that it doesn't really matter how many arms you think you have or how many that you stockpile is if you're trying to do protect democracy or fight tyranny or whatever other horseshit things these people say about the second amendment you just i just point back to waco and be like you fuck around and find out you're gonna have the whole not only do we just have the incompetent atf coming down and still fucking all your shit up but you can have the entire u.s army military cia fbi all of those folks who are going to come down they're not going to allow you just to have a fucking insurrection in well, a compound and succeed. <laughs> i but, had actually not thought about that angle because this is certainly used by far-right conspiracy types as an argument for the need for the second amendment but that's only because they didn't fucking remember it and remember how it was like David Koresh actually set the whole fucking building on fire and killed all the women and children inside. They don't know right? that though. Yeah, they don't, but they're, but, and it's because he was about to fucking lose. He was about to be captured in. He was about to be taken in on child molestation charges. He was about to have his entire cult upended by the government. And yeah, the, it is this whole thing is no, you're not going to be able to out match gun for gun the u.s federal government you have a better opportunity to be a participant in democracy and make changes than you do thinking that you can start your own army so yeah it's i don't know they both don't seem to have much effect on things these days but okay, listen i was there before democracy was a total shit show and like the light that came down after the Berlin Wall, where we thought democracy had won. I don't That's think I was where... alive yet when the Berlin Wall came down. I know it was the same year I was born, but I think it was in the summer. And wait, when was the? No, that was in December, wasn't it? Of actually. Okay, yeah. so I was alive. Yeah, but it's but that was the setting of this time. Like that's what I grew up with, where my Pollyanna-ish comes because I think that we can make this democracy thing work like that that's what we should be doing and yeah we should be able to criticize our government and fix it but this whole concept that we're going to take up arms against them is ridiculous because of this american exceptionalism that the same people talk about because we have all this 
things happening in our government. Anyway, there's my diatribe about week. Yeah. So I've spent because this siege was like 51 days. And so I've spent the last five weeks trying to absorb as much information and documentation about Waco as I could. And oh my God, it is a shit show every possible direction that you look at it. Now it's also important to remember that every account that we have of what happened at Waco comes from one of two highly suspect and politically motivated sources, either the feds or the Branch Davidian survivors. All of the information that we have from what happened inside that compound comes from one of those two. Neither one of those people, sorry, I'm let the sirens pass. It kind of sounded like apparently for the 51 days. <laughs> yeah, this is Florida, by the way. So each one of those sources is not exactly trustworthy. There have been a lot of documentaries about it. There was actually a really great, I think, Netflix documentary about it. There, of course, is a seemingly somewhat less accurate Showtime series right now. There was season one, which was about Waco. Season two just went up Waco the Aftermath last weekend to mark the anniversary. And it's about the connection to the Oklahoma City bombing. Of course, Timothy McVeigh was at Waco. There are there's interviews with Timmy Timothy McVeigh outside of Waco. It's insane. But the actual cold hard facts are hard to tease out of all the hysteria in either direction. So there are some indisputable things like Vernon Howell, who changed his name in 1990 to David Koresh, led the Branch Divinians in this living slash religious compound outside of Waco, Texas. That's a fact. The group had been amassing illegal weapons for what Koresh believed was the opening of the fifth seal. And God, I went on the rabbit hole of all that. None of it is of sane people's thinking in which he claimed that the fifth seal would be opened in a firefight between himself and the federal government. A lot of people don't know, Koresh in 1989 was on trial for attempted murder. And it was only after that trial ended in a mistrial that he decided to change his name, which is, he claimed for marketing purposes, but was really because you could have found out that David Koresh, or sorry, what was his name? Vernon Brand. Howell was charged with attempted murder. So he wanted a clean slate and they gave it to him. So everything after that, after that is so mired in controversy and politics that it's hard to tease any of it out. David Koresh did marry a 14-year-old girl and had a child with this 14-year-old girl. Gross. In the state of Texas, that was not illegal. Ew. So technically, he had not broken any laws. So a lot of the allegations of child abuse were never substantiated. They interviewed the 19, I think it was, children who David Crush released from the compound during this, the ongoing skirmish, who showed no signs of child abuse, sexual or mental, any way. He did father quite a few of the kids that were in there and died. But creepy, yes. Whether or not he was actually a pedophile in the sense of the word that we think, that was never substantiated. It's not like that other cult case. The sex cult? <laughs> not the sex cult. That's, yeah, uh, it's more there's modern. a lot of 
Yeah. There was the, oh, they just had another Netflix special on that one too, but it was the, it was a, one of the Mormon ones and oh, the fellow had, yeah, he, yeah. yeah they, so they, it, it was another like government mess up where they actually ended up trying to take the kids. I think it was in Arizona and uh, those Western, those desert states are not good. But, so it's um, like, this is not like the case, like the, the, the government does everything perfectly. And especially no, at no, that no, time, no. This, this was widely known that the ITF, ATF screwed up a whole bunch of stuff in relation. Yes. And they didn't just screw up once. They screwed up every single day for 51 days. So the weapons charge was what started all this. A male person basically went to ATF and said, I think I'm delivering grenades to, I just said delivering, delivering grenades to this kind of cult people. And I think you should check it out. That was true. They know that they had high caliber, like armor piercing bullets and that they had amassed a huge trove of weapons. David Koresh did tell them that there would be a firefight between them and the feds that would bring about part of the apocalypse. His followers did believe that he was the Messiah, which was, of course, the reason why he was able to institute his celibacy rule for everyone but him. He, of course, infamously said that sin of the flesh was the burden that he was going to take for everyone else so that he could have sex with everybody who was in there and their husbands and other people couldn't because he was going to take the burden of sex from everybody else. Yeah, okay. But the hostage negotiation between Koresh and the FBI was successful. They got 30 some people, 35, I think it was, people out of that facility. They fired that guy. Not long into it. They removed him and they never replaced him. And I actually read this guy's book like two years ago, not realizing it was the same person. It was about, it was called Stalling for Time, My Life as a Hostage Negotiator. So he wasn't even there when the final thing happened on the 51st day in which, oh God, we used tanks to crush parts of the building to distribute tear gas and flash grenades in a facility that we, there were 88, I think, people inside of, knowing that there were dozens of children. We did that. We also blasted random noises and repeated songs at full like blast and had floodlights that at night that didn't let them sleep, engaging in psychological warfare. Again, with a group that had been amenable to hostage negotiations and was releasing children. So we tried to basically psychologically torture people who were already mentally unstable and got all shocked when they didn't want to come out. There were several people at some point who tried to get out and get in who were shot and killed. So the some of the conversations with the people who weren't Koresh were afraid that if they stepped outside, they'd get shot and killed because that's what happened. So they didn't want to leave. It was a mess. It was a mess. The fire part is still, I, according to the people who fled, there was never a mass suicide plan. That was never a part of it. They had no plans to kill themselves. They had no idea that the fires were being set. They still, to this day, say that it was the feds who set the fires. The feds, of course, blame the, the branch right. Davidians because they, the, a lot of people died, like 80 people died, including mm -hmm. several dozen children. So that seems to be a point of contention 
that I'm frankly not inclined to believe either party with because right. there were congressional investigations into ATF's handling of it. Chuck Schumer looking way younger than what he does now was leading the charge on that at the time. Yeah, because he's been around that long. I know. God, I was looking. I was like, holy shit, that's Chuck Schumer. He looks so young. And then again, this was 30 years ago. He was ago. a human once, believe it or not. Yeah, I know, right? The ATF and the FBI obviously were trying to defend themselves and what they did. But there are a lot of other circumstances around that make me less inclined to believe them. Like the fact that they were setting off flash grenades with tear gas, which it's illegal to use tear gas the way that they did. It's It was part of the Geneva Convention. They used it on hmm. children, innocent children, flooded a whole building of it. And uh, they did not, and that had led to fires in the past. Several, there were documented cases, about a dozen within the previous two years, huh. in which tear gas was deployed and the flash grenades were deployed and that caused a fire in a building. They should have anticipated that happening, whether or not they set the fires and planned accordingly. They didn't have fire trucks there. They didn't have anything planned ahead of time. That's so dangerous. I will say, from my recollection of viewing it in real time is that they went in because the fires had been started. Nope. So the timeline was actually that they used tanks to push through the building and distribute the tear gas and flash grenades to disorient people at first, thinking that people would come out. And as nobody was coming out and the building started burning, panic kind of ensued, but they had no fire trucks. They're in the middle of nowhere. People, the whole thing burnt down. Like there was no help. There was also a bit of debate and unclear resolution as to whether or not the people who were trapped inside could have even escaped because hmm. one of the tanks that busted through the building to distribute the tear gas had crushed one of the main walls that hmm. would have let people get out. Yeah. So even if you get past the who started the fire, you have to deal with then the fact that the United States made it impossible for at least some of those people to even escape because mm. they had put all the women and children basically in this concrete area at the bottom in case there was firefight when they started busting in so they wouldn't be shot and that part of that collapsed making it impossible wow. for them to get out so again this is no matter which way you cut it and no matter who you believe this situation was exacerbated every step of the way by the feds we're also dealing with a cult who let a, at least epophile, what is it? When it's like Matt Gates's thing. It's not pedophile. It's specific to like teenagers. I can't pre remember what the word is. Who had sex with all of the women and fathered like two dozen kids. And uh, clearly was a narcissist who used the situation to get himself on the sure. news. But was also dying because he had been shot and gangrene had set in because there was no medical supplies. But also negotiated with hostage people to get people out. And so there's, I think that Taylor Kish, who played Koresh in the Showtime series, was far more sympathetic than the reality of what David mm -hmm. Koresh was. But there are indisputable facts that kind of make it look like, I don't think he intended for people to die. When they first yeah, came. Probably not. They would say that he like outside to tell people, don't shoot. There are women and children. He put his own body out there. Don't shoot. There's women and children. We can talk this out. And they shot him. And then they shot up the building. And then 
cops died. And I think after that point, four, four officers died, there was no way that this was going to be resolved any other way than it yeah. came out no matter what. Think of the time, too. This was like yeah. leading up. This was this is when crime was on the rise. <laughs> <laughs> the early 90s. So, right then. so it was like this era where the cops could do no wrong, too. Yeah. Right. It was like but no yeah, cops ran into that burning building to save people. Not one. There yeah. was one person with ATF or the FBI, I can't remember which one, who upon realizing that the burning building was going to keep burning and no one was coming out, who started getting the people who were fleeing, asking them where the children were, where the children were to get them help, but was unable to do so because the wall was collapsed. So even yeah, if sure. Koresh had set the fires and people wanted to escape, they couldn't have because mm. we crushed the wall. It's but, no but it, matter I, what, it is so messed up. It is it so is, fucked up. But I'm going to also throw back on all these fanatics who are now looking to this as a rallying point that, like, I'm going to use the same logic. It's if you didn't break the law to begin with, then yeah, you right. Been here, right? Yeah, but since they had, they then fired at ATF with were not legal weapons. You were not right. allowed to have those. And, and that's why I say this is the fuck around and find out moment, because that's really yeah. what, I mean, yes, it was a shit show, but it really does go back to this concept that people have where it is like, how is this going to play out when it comes? I'm going to have, even if I'm, and there's no doubt about it, that the Koresh, David Koresh was well-armed, like you said, grenades, all sorts of other crap. Yeah. And they had a whole compound in the middle of friggin' nowhere it's what is the end game here going to be? And well, they amassed these weapons specifically for the purpose of going down in gunfire against the, the U.S. government. So, again, no matter which way this goes, it's bad. I also was not aware of the connection between Ruby Ridge and Waco. Okay. So I'm trying to, oh God, I even edited this guy's Wikipedia page just because I felt like this was a horrible misrepresentation. There was a sniper who was involved with Ruby Ridge, which if you're like me and had never heard of that before, was this armed standoff between this family and some of his brothers, I think it was, in Idaho or some state like that. This was the- These are the sovereign people, right? Yeah. Okay. The sniper who was there uh, shot and killed the main guy's, I think, 13-year-old son and shot and killed- his unarmed wife who was holding their infant when she was shot and killed. Supposedly miss took one shot and hit the guy, but then he went inside, took another shot, killed the wife holding their like 10 month old baby. So yeah, this was bad. This was right before Waco. And so you kind of had these white nationalist militia groups already knowing what was going on because of the specific event, already charged to be anti-government. Some of that's legitimate. There were legitimate concerns about the militarization of domestic policing and the types of weapons mm -hmm. that were being deployed in situations in which is a family held up in their own home. Mm -hmm. So that's a fair criticism, but they obviously took it much further. So that same sniper was at Waco and was played a critical role in the reason why there was a firefight. At Waco as well. They've had this weird line about how he lives his days in shame and obscurity, which I copied for something else. But I deleted that because it was not sourced. And I was like, you don't know that he lives in shame. 
this is complete conjecture and it's not cited and the guy could be living happily and blissfully in Hawaii where he's from. You don't fucking know that. Take that shit out. That doesn't belong on a Wikipedia page. I use the same term to describe one of my trolls. But um, yeah, so even these people's Wikipedia pages are a mess. I hate Wikipedia. It's shit. But I can't believe I ever gave them like $5 during their fundraising drive like 15 years ago. But (laughs) so that guy was involved as well. We know Timothy McVeigh went over there, did interviews with media there about anti-government shit and was involved with this Aryan terrorist group. That Michigan militia too, right? Yes. Two years to the day of the end of the siege, in which again, the building did burn down and pretty much everybody died. I think only five people were able to even get out. And that's because they were in different parts of the building. To the day, Timothy McVeigh ignited a truck in front of the federal building in Oklahoma City, which is where some of the overlapping agencies had their offices. Also included a daycare facility that McVeigh knew about and killed 26 children as what he said was revenge for Waco. This guy's life was a complete mess. He was always this way. He would have used whatever justification he thought was relevant to do what he was going to do. Waco or Ruby Ridge or whatever else. He was going to blow something up and he wanted a reason. So he is a domestic terrorist. He was executed, which was the proper punishment. And he killed... A lot of people. In fact, it was the worst terrorist incident in our country's history until 9-11 and is still the second worst incident. So I think it was 168 people were killed and 700 and some more injured. The blast radius knocked out windows within, I think it was a mile. I Again, I was too young, so I didn't know anything about this really other than somebody blew up a building. I didn't know about the Aryan white nationalist militia angle to it. I didn't know it had any connection to Waco. I've learned a lot about these groups. And the more I learn about them, the more disturbing it is that Donald Trump has become an urgent symbol of this. Yeah. And then you had January 6th. And if there's any proof whatsoever that January 6th should have been the stop, then it's all of these events that led up to this domestic terrorist act. And yet... What's the worst sentence we've had for January 6th? Six years? Something like that? Six years. That's it. We are not handling this as a country the way that we should. But, okay, so I cover Waco. Of course, we got to move on to the number one thing. Number one. We're already over time. We did have a break, so we're doing I did. My computer glitched out, so we had to restart. So number one in our countdown for today, since this will be airing on 420 is some of the biggest myths and disinformation about marijuana. Now, we could do a whole series about this because it was so coordinated, planned, and funded that you could talk for hours, days, weeks about the disinformation around marijuana. So I, looking over all the stuff, picked a program that I was old enough to remember which was the D.A.R.E. program. Yay, me too. One of the most expensive government failures of mm-hmm. the world war on drugs ever. The war on drugs, as we call it, which started in the 1970s, has already cost us more than a trillion dollars. And it has been a massive failure. Yeah. It just, it's ridiculous. I want to reference a book here because if you haven't read it, you should. It's called Merchants of Doubt. So the Heartland Institute and a bunch of other organizations basically 
are paid to spread disinformation and to combat science with a number of things. And it really blooms with tobacco. While the Surgeon General of the United States was saying that tobacco was safe, while there were recommendations to smoke tobacco to ease your stress and blah, 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 we were also peddling some crazy ass bullshit about marijuana, which is weird. There's a video I won't play right now, but uh, we'll cut it in because I already downloaded it, about the dangers of marijuana that this guy tries like a joint, and this is a real ad. And then ends up drinking a broken beer bottle and swallowing glass. And then he starts thieving and his whole life is destroyed because he smoked a joint. Which was pretty reflective of the attitude of that times. It reefer was madness. Exactly. Reefer madness. <laughs> One of the biggest lies that was paid for by the U.S. government. By us. Yes. Tax dollars. Hey, listen, fun fact, this goes all the way back to the founding of the nation as well, because the founding fathers were tobacco farmers. If you go through the Capitol, this is what I learned as an intern, super fun. When I interned for Republicans, this is what I learned, that actually tobacco leaves adorn all Capitol building on the inside. Yeah. And you can smoke anywhere inside the Capitol buildings. I think they actually rolled that back just recently. But and now Republicans are trying to put it back. So I actually, before they rolled it back, smoked a cigarette on the floor of the Senate. So I think I tried like cigarettes when I was like 15 and I tried one of them and I was like, nah, I don't mind being a complete nerd and saying I've never tried marijuana. I was like the nerdy kid that got all of the other nerds to smoke cigarettes and skip (laughs) class. And I played soccer. So like we were very pushed away from doing anything that could impact our breathing and our in-shapeness. So we were told like not to eat fast food, not to smoke, not to do any of these other things. And I was pretty serious about soccer. So I stuck to it. I played um, basketball and softball and I got all the good kids from there to skip class. Yeah, no, I, I've I always know. been, a, oh God, Jake calls me a prude with those things. I've never tried marijuana. I'm waiting yeah, until it is legal in all capacities because with my luck, okay, I would end up it. getting arrested for it between some hole or gap between state and federal. I'm No, until it's all clear, I'm not trying it. Once it's all clear, I'm looking forward to trying it. But until that moment, so I'm not going to fuck around I and find out. Don't, I don't like cannabis as a consumer because it makes me not talk. And that's like my favorite thing to do. <laughs> I get there. I have no idea how I'm going to react to it. So I've always been afraid to try it, anyways. But since it's illegal, it just gives me an out to be like, no, guys, I'm not breaking the law today. Thanks. Bye. Looping back to how effective the DARE program was, I was the DARE state champion essay writer in 1988. (sighs) And I have done a lot of drugs. Let you know how effective that program was. Oh my God. So yeah, a lot of research came out in the 90s about this program, which was mostly funded in the 80s. Reagan's was really the one who pushed this war on drugs, especially war on weed, war on porn, war on the gay lifestyle. This guy, every modern kind of psychologically mind-fucking thing that we have about our society bloomed during Reagan. Yeah, thanks a lot. But um, yeah, you're right. About economics, what a dick. Yeah, that's the obviously the most damaging and lasting one that we've had. But also this idea that premarital sex and attitudes towards pornography, the idea of teaching people, and this is Puritan ideology, that sex is dirty and wrong. And you should save it for the person you love most in the world. And honestly, to think the whole time he was married to the throat goat. 
Oh my God. <laughs> so sorry, then, that's that might be misinformation, disinformation. I don't know if we should be calling Nancy the throat. I don't want to Google that to find out. So we're just gonna go past it. I digress. Again, a little young to get a lot of these references, but I have an idea. So DARE was founded in 1983 under Reagan, and by the early 90s, it was in 75% of school districts and government funded in the country. So a lot of research started popping up in the 90s. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to get throat goat out of my head. In the early 2000s. put that on Nancy Reagan's face. Oh, God. How she Um, got ahead in Hollywood before she married good old Ronnie. A lot of academic organizations. Of course. Purportedly, I'm not googling this to fact check it. So if you want to comment, everybody else should though. Absolutely, let me know. Actually, you know what happened, Rebecca? This is something that was trending when you got thrown off Twitter. Oh, really? Yeah, it was that was a really that was like a really good week when Throat Goat was trending. Oh God, probably that's Twitter gold. That was before Elon, though. God damn Elon! But so there was a lot of academic research, and including some by the American Medical Association that prove that not only was DARE ineffective, people who went through the program are actually more likely to try drugs. It didn't just have the opposite effect. It made it worse, which was super embarrassing for the feds who had been pushing it this whole time. Yeah, because I, re- I remember I was like, and I'm sorry, it was 92, not 88, but because that's when I was 12. I was sixth grade. But I remember they would describe it and I was like, Damn, this sounds cool though. <laughs> yeah, because uh, and it's I remember it's like something was like our cop because it was taught by a cop too. Actually, he was like a most of them were taught by cops. It was actually started in Los yeah. Angeles by the police department there. So some of the cops apparently would drive up to the schools in cars that they had like sports cars they had seized from drug dealers and shit. It's like you're driving up in a drug dealer's sports car and you're trying to tell people this is a bad damn. thing. Everyone's damn oh I want to get a sports car. No, I Wait, remember- how did you weed and then get a sports car? Yeah, he was telling us about PCP, which like was definitely like an 80s, 90s oh, thing. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, this dude did PCP and I was he was I was standing on his arm and he threw me across the room and everyone's all the boys are like Dude, get superpowers from PCP. You need to get some PCP. <laughs> we throw cops around. Anyway, yeah. So it was a testament to the effectiveness of there. <laughs> it made things worse, and we spent like a trillion dollars on it. It wasn't until 2001 that the Surgeon General of the U.S. deemed the Dare program ineffective and would no longer fund it. Also funny, Jeff Sessions in 2017 sought to revive the failed program that. Every institution who reviewed it said, this doesn't work and it's making it worse. Stop doing it. Stop paying for this to make things worse. That he wanted to bring it back in 2017. I'm sorry. Okay. Throw good. I'm just going to, now, you know what? I got to Google it to satisfy my curiosity now. So, Nancy but at any rate, the there's dare a lot pro- of things the that dare happened program in the was, Rebecca. Yeah, I know. Thank God I was born at the end, the tail end of it. The dare program was one of the, most comprehensive government-sponsored propaganda and disinformation campaigns in modern U.S. history. It shared a lot of the like crap that we now know isn't true. Marijuana as a gateway drug. Marijuana having no legitimate medical purpose, which obviously we know that's false now. Marijuana leading you to a life of crime and gang activity and it being more dangerous than cigarettes was one of the things I actually remember from the 90s hearing, which of course is not true not even remotely close to being true so yeah it was actually and they knew these weren't true that's the worst part of it they knew it wasn't true they had and they did it anyways 
But um, yeah, so it was one of the most well-funded, organized, forced propaganda campaigns in U.S. history. And it was in 75% of school districts in the country. And yeah, that's crazy to me. Like, I... I remember hearing the, oh, smoking one joint is like having 15 cigarettes or some ridiculous thing like that. And no, it's not even Jesus. That's just a lie. It is a straight lie and they know it. And they pushed the anti-weed stuff at the period of time in which they were still trying to claim cigarettes were not only safe, but had health benefits because big tobacco, of course, like you said, tobacco leaves are enshrined in our nation's capital and founding. So that is our number one to celebrate 420 is the massive propaganda USA program of D.A.R.E. started under Reagan and finally defunded under Bush, of all things. But uh, wait, hey, but there's somebody movies. that knows the value of drugs. <laughs> you give them credit. They at least got rid of it. But uh, yeah, so it's insane. And it was wrong and it was false. And we have a lot of reasons in this thread just today of why we should be generally distrustful of government officials and police for promoting propaganda, for exacerbating hostage situations, for not properly holding men who shoot black boys in the face accountable until there's literal like marches in the street. But at the same time, not what all about back the blue, Rebecca. What about back? Okay, blue? first of all, I hate getting pi- like pigeoned into pigeons or what is it on the police right now? Is that what you're saying? Oh yes, I'm absolutely for that, but not in the way that people think. I actually had an idea when I was running for Congress of refund the police about restructuring how we do police departments, allocating more mm-hmm. resources and training to mental health responses because a lot of the you'd be surprised yeah. how many of those calls are actual medical calls. My brother is a cop. My sister's husband was a cop. His dad was the chief of police in the town I grew up in. My dad worked as a sheriff's deputy when I was a kid. The sheriff of my town named nicknamed me Trouble in an adorable way. Not like I was a cute, but you're always in trouble kind of way. So I'm not anti-police. If anybody has a good reason to be anti-police, it's a person who's been raided at gunpoint and had guns pointed at their children right in front of them on the orders of a governor for retaliation for being a whistleblower. And I'm not anti-police. However, authority necessitates a level of skepticism, not hostility. There's important to make a difference here. Because if you go down that road, you end up with Timothy McVeigh and domestic terrorists and this kind of anti-Fed movement that we see being propagated out, especially in Florida, by not just Trump, but DeSantis and others. Skepticism is different than hostility. And that's really important to remember. And let's not forget that this is tied up in corruption. Yes, that that is Almost all of the situations that we've talked about here has a direct relationship to powerful political figures and what they wanted to accomplish. And the policing agencies were the tools. And so I think that's a discussion that we need to have in a more robust kind of way in order to- Every single one of these things we could discuss for like hours and hours. Oh, yeah. But it's but. about rebuilding trust. It's trust in our institutions and trust in our polity. And I think that for me as a like a public administration expert, that's what's been so dismaying to me is I really am on the Pollyanna hopeful side that we can build a government that works for the people. And that means that we have mm-hmm. institutions whose main purpose is to serve the people and the yes. politicians build it, but that we have 
a strong government that can work to help us, not play the role of DeSantis's henchmen like we see here in Florida so often. And not just me. People who think it's just me are not paying attention in Florida. It's not just you. It's yeah. just you have become a lightning rod for them. And I've said this, I tell everybody that I meet when I talk about this, I said, look, I understand that it's difficult to hear what Rebecca is saying sometimes because the message is so marred by these political interests, by yep. the trolls. And when I tell you that I knew from the very first time I was talking about your whistleblowing, that there was a different reaction that I got. It's different than any other political discussion I've ever had. All you have it's to do is weird. mention your name and it is an attack on yep. you. And it's it and I don't think people fully get it. I don't think they fully get it and that's a shame. Yeah. It is and I started putting together a timeline of that's right. Just the shit since May 19th, honestly, because I could go do the shit before May 19th in my life and that would be a book in itself and heavily cited and sourced so that none of it can possibly be disputed. I publicly spoke out about being poisoned for the first time which was a terrifying experience. And I have photos of it that I'm probably never going to publish online because it's, I was unrecognizable. Um, against you if you do. <laughs> it was terrifying. Oh, I know. That's part of the reason too. That, and I was like naked so that you could see that it wasn't just like my face. That's another reason not to release them. But I publicly spoke out about some of it for the first time. And I'd been building something like that to combat this whole I'm paranoid thing, which... I'm going to insert this clip here in my favorite clip ever, which is from the movie Eight Legged Freaks, where he says, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean people aren't following me because that's been my life for the last three years. And there is a level, I think, of fear and paranoia. But if you frame that in the context of everything that's happened to me, it's justified. And yeah. so everybody has their boogeyman, I think. This thing, this anamorphous, I mean, for conservatives right now, it's trans people or woke it doesn't have a hard today, apparently, the bills. Yeah. So by the time this airs, we're probably going to have legislation ready to be signed by Ron DeSantis that is openly attacking LGBT youth, adults, and families in the state of Florida. Yeah. Yep. And it'll keep coming because woke and trans rights are these, what do they called it? It's to unite them against a common enemy, and which is one of the easiest ways to invoke passion in your base or political movement or whatever it is. It's also diversion, frankly. It is. And it's diversion even though from the anti-democratic other bills, the rollback of home rule, the rollback of transparency about DeSantis's travel, to the resign to run, to the FOIA request stuff. Yeah. And so... I was looking over this whole timeline and like I sent the downward spiral of Florida in a way, the more intense and severe things that kept happening and continue to happen. And uh, it's very bizarre that this is my life, I think, especially like considering the way I grew up and everything, which is also part of the reason that it ended up working like this. But uh, it's really been right. terrifying. You don't have a powerful family. Exactly. Yeah, I know, right? Or a ton of money. I was actually notified yesterday by the Santa Rosa County clerks that one of my online stalkers has been harassing the clerk's office now. 
and they forwarded me the emails and they didn't have to do this. They were concerned. So they forwarded me the emails and I sent them to the FBI who's been investigating this Dan Goldwasser guy who you'll see crawl all over my post. DG, I think it's D Goldwass something is his username. Yeah. He's been after Uh, me when I say something too. Stalking me for years and is now openly harassing the county courts about me, which is even weirder. He knows my son's middle name and his date of birth and all of these other details that are not public information. It's getting to the point where it's like one of those celebrity stalkers who just eventually snaps and kills the celebrity that they're stalking. But I don't trust the same court system enough to try to get a restraining order and have it approved because last year I tried to do that on behalf of my minor son who was 12 being stalked into a bathroom by one of now Matt Gates's congressional staffers. He got that job after doing that and was told no because I was a public figure. So yeah, I'm afraid that one of these people is going to do something and bringing up things like Timothy McVeigh and all of the conspiracy theories around what really happened in Oklahoma which I made the big mistake of saying, okay, so tell me what really happened. And then now I've got those psychos trolling me too. But um, it's living in fear constantly. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm getting out of Florida. Like I've, my family has suffered enough for this state. There has to be a point where I say that's enough. And it came when they came after my kid. The like third time they came after my kid. I should specify that because there's twice before. Yeah, it's inappropriate. And it sadly does. It happens a lot. It's happening very publicly to you and very poignantly coming from Ron DeSantis. But I actually just did a podcast on another show called Everyone Has a Story, where I heard about a case out of the Broward County Sheriff. This happened in the 90s. Again, it's that same time where the police were just like allowed to do whatever they wanted because the crime was so high. They were actually cooking drugs and then entrapping people and putting them into jail. And this one black police officer stood up to them and then they came after him and filed. And there were three different times that he was arrested from everything from child abuse to uh, to drug trafficking found not guilty every single time because i guarantee if that guy had become a celebrity during this modern age they'd be pulling up every single one of those arrests to make him seem like he was somehow deserving of the abuse that he received at the same time that's what they did and then but it would be constant and stream straight to his phone different time for sure but i just want to put something like that out there definitely check out the other podcast that's with myself and cornell bunting but you these types of things happen. They've been happening in Florida. They happen to everyday people, but they can get pushed under the rug. But when you're doing what Rebecca's doing, which is pushing on powerful people, and you have a platform where people are going to listen to you, be sure that these anti-democratic actors, these authoritarians are going to use all the powers at their disposal. And that includes manipulation of police departments. That includes manipulation of the media. That includes coming up with Things to legally go after somebody, even when there's not actual legal grounds. And the one thing I will say right now that really pissed me off about people who were coming back after all the things that happened with recently with your son is this, the fact that first of all, they believed the police report without any thing, which I quickly shown and not be right. But by the way, I didn't even, you couldn't find the actual police report in any way. It was like shown to reporters or blah, blah, blah. There was no 
reliable public source for well, that David, long time. The unredacted version to the Miami Herald. I worked right. directly. And that's why the Miami Herald was the only outlet that actually covered the story. Correct. Right. And, but nowhere else was it available. And then they talk about things like, oh, there was different ethics boards and things that happened within the state. What people don't realize is that when these types of things happen within the state of Florida, these are all Ron DeSantis appointees or other Republican appointees. So yes, there, there can be this finding by a state board that X, Y, and Z is not what they believed it was. Just like my opponent, Byron Donald's ethics complaints that he lied about his felony status were not an ethics violations, but it's because it was his party and Ron DeSantis and those folks who were making the decisions. That doesn't mean that was what the truth is. So I think people are not really tuned in. You cannot trust the institutions in the state of Florida, period. That is what Rebecca Jones has said from the very beginning. It is something that I knew before Rebecca Jones even came out. So I'm so happy that she stood up to let everybody know that this is what has been happening. There's been this data manipulation for a long time. Sorry, I just got my visitor home. Um, <laughs> this is Evie, my Evie. But my which means that I'm at school. <laughs> this is her subtle way of telling me, okay, it's been your way over time. It's, mom. Time. it's time. But uh, yeah, the thing to me is that was most outrageous. She's okay. Was that anybody could in any way try to justify what happened in my house that day or about pointing right. guns at this one when she was two. Like they'll find any way to try to excuse it. But we are way over time. We've got editing work to do for this. And uh, somebody wants to play. I guess that will be our extra Thanks long episode for joining us. yeah here <laughs> we'll break it up you'll have short ones thanks for joining us here on misinformational with rebecca jones and special guest evie and i've been dr cindy banier co-host and check out all our shows on bigmouthmediafl.com we'll see you next time bye bye, bye guys thanks for joining misinformational with rebecca jones brought to you by big mouth media stay connected by visiting misinformational.com and check out all the great shows and articles on BigMouthMediaFL.com. You can also join the conversation with us on Facebook, Instagram, and the cesspool that's Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to Misinformational wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.